everybody, and welcome to this episode of Leading the Browns. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and leave us a comment and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts to show your support. This week, we have Dr. Allison Van Dyke. She is both a board-certified anatomic pathologist and cancer epidemiologist. She earned her MD and PhD from Wayne State University School of Medicine in 2011 with graduate training in cancer biology. She completed postgraduate medical training in anatomic pathology at Yale New Haven Hospital and surgical subspecialty training in thoracic pathology at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Dr. Van Dyke completed a postdoctoral fellowship in the Infections and Immunoepidemiology branch of the Division of Cancer Epidemiology and Genetics at the National Cancer Institute. Currently working in the Data Quality Analysis and Interpretation branch of the Surveillance Research Program at the National Cancer Institute, Dr. Van Dyke directs the Surveillance Epidemiology and End Results Linked Virtual Tissue Repository Pilot and Pediatric Cancer Whole Slide Imaging Pilot. She also leads an effort to integrate tumor site histology, terminology, and coding across standard setters. She is currently also pursuing a Master of Public Administration from UNC Chapel Hill. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Leading the Rounds. Caleb, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Peter. Looking forward to this one. Yeah, I'm really excited too. Today we have Dr. Allison Van Dyke with us. Dr. Van Dyke is actually a graduate of Wayne State, just like us. Dr. Van Dyke, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you um, for having me. So why don't you uh, catch us up on a little bit of what you've been doing since you graduated from Wayne State? So um, I graduated in 2011 with both an MD and PhD. PhD was in cancer biology. And from there, I went to Yale New Haven Hospital to do a anatomic pathology uh, residency. And from there, I went to do a thoracic pathology fellowship at University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And then from there, I decided, hey, I really have to get back into research. And I came to the NIH um, and worked at um, the National Cancer Institute for a postdoc in cancer epidemiology. And from there, I got zapped up really quickly about two and a half years into my postdoc um, to work at NIH. So I'm working in public health with the National Cancer Institute with their SEER cancer registry system that they support. Um, so it's really rewarding and, and we're doing some amazing things. We're going to change the kind of data and resources available to researchers for cancer research. So it's really exciting. That's great. Going back a little bit further, how did you make the decision to decide you wanted to get your MD, PhD and become a physician scientist? Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. I took kind of a, a roundabout way to making that decision. Uh, first, I was thinking I wanted to do a PhD. I was involved in research and, and as an undergrad and loved every minute of it. And um, then I took a course on psychobiology of stress, and it was all about how chronic elicitation of the stress response is associated with disease. And I was fascinated by that class. It was at Haverford College. And so from um, there, I really decided I wanted to be a doctor. And so I started volunteering um, at Jefferson Hospital in Philadelphia um, and with spinal cord injury patients in their rehab center and occupational and physical therapy rehab center. And really that patient interaction was what 
clinched the deal for me that I wanted to be a physician. So I couldn't imagine being a physician without being a scientist. And I couldn't imagine being a scientist without being a physician, because I really like that applied context for science and medicine. So how do you think both of these roles, both your scientist perspective and your physician perspective have played into who you are and how you're able to lead others? Yeah, so I think very differently as, as an MD-PhD student or, or graduate and, and trainee, um, MD-PhD stu- physician scientists often think bigger and more critically and more analytically and have that scientific context so that every time you're interacting with a patient or you're, in my case, looking through a case at a microscope or, or doing an autopsy, I'm always applying science to what information I'm learning um, clinically. So that was just, it's just a different perspective and things that I learned clinically always informed thing, my scientific questions. So um, that's, that's how um, I, I think I'm, I'm shaped by that MD-PhD training. So having both of these professional identities, um, have you noticed a difference in how you function as a leader in science versus how you function as a leader as a medical professional? Sure. So um, I currently don't practice. I'm boarded and licensed as a physician in Maryland, but I don't practice. I decided to dedicate my my time and my career to public service. So um, the careers for scientists and for physicians in the government um, go beyond just NIH. Um, there are many opportunities and the really exciting part about being a physician scientist in the federal government is that you have access to resources, data, funding, et cetera, and connections with other governments, other entities um, to really leverage the, the might of the federal government resources to accomplish and solve big scientific questions and social and, and health problems, public health problems. So it, it's an exciting place to be and an unusual place for a physician scientist to end up um, in the federal government, but it's something that I feel very dedicated to. I imagine the NIH has been quite a crazy place this year with everything going on and, and maybe the place you've been hasn't really been impacted. I know you said you're doing cancer research, but maybe the people around you have. How has it been this year with everything going on? Well, there are a lot of things happening. So actually the National Cancer Institute does have quite a bit of COVID um, research going on. Also because we are in public health, we also are able to leverage other resources to link together information um, about testing for SARS-CoV-2 and risk of reinfection. So that's something that is being analyzed um, and and worked through. But yeah, so we actually do have quite a bit of COVID work going on, even though it's the focused on cancer at the National Cancer Institute. So how is being on the front lines of research? Because we talked to frontline uh, healthcare providers before, but how is being on the front lines of like research regarding COVID and experiencing this whole thing as a, as a physician scientist leader affected your personal perspective and what you hope to accomplish in, yeah. you know, in the post COVID era. 
Yeah. So I think all a lot of of us out there um, have across the country and across the world have really re-examined our lives and our the legacy of what our um, careers and lives will will be. And so I figure I have, I'm 46, I have another roughly 20 years left in the federal government. And I started questioning where, what level of impact do I want to have? And so I started to think big, and then I started to think even bigger. And one of the things that I realized early on in my career is that there's an art and a science to leadership, especially in public health and in public service and in science. So there are different approaches for all those contexts. And um, I knew that I needed to learn more about how to lead and effective um, methods for being a public servant and public administrator. So I'm actually going back to school to, while I'm working at the National Cancer Institute, I'm doing an online um, master's of public administration from UNC Chapel Hill. And um, even though I'm only two classes into the, to the program, I've learned so much that directly impacts how I lead on a daily basis. So um, I think the pandemic has just made all of us rethink things think about our legacies, but really has prompted me to, to really go and get more training because I want, I'm, I'm interested in, in serving at a higher level and the senior executive service in the, in the government. And to do that, um, I felt like I needed more training to be the most effective leader I could be. So you mentioned going back and getting more training. Have there been other things that you've done maybe outside of your formal education that's led you to more comfort as a leader and and impact as your leadership development? Yeah. So, you know, I think that as one of the things that I've learned is that we're all human beings and that when you're leading a group of people, things that are unexpected happen. Um, and the more flexible you can be as a leader and understanding about the unexpected, the better, uh, the better leader you're going to be. Um, and really that honesty about with, I'm very honest with my trainees, um, people who are um, interested in working with us, that I've overcome significant barriers and by divulging that it really has helped people who work with me to really believe in themselves and know that they can overcome any barriers that they're they're encountering. I think flexibility is the number one key of being a, an effective leader, especially right now, because several of the projects that I'm leading, you know, they were derailed because of COVID. Um, couple of them were tissue-based projects and hospital laboratories were shut down for a while to non-COVID and non-essential functions. So those things got derailed. So flexibility and understanding and really allowing people to be as effective as they can be um, is is really my leadership style that I'm starting to adopt. Um, I've learned from watching and being um, exposed to some really good mentors at Wayne State School of Medicine. 
Um, I did my PhD in cancer biology with Dr. Ann Schwartz. Um, and Dr. Schwartz actually served as interim chief operating officer um, at Carmanos for a while. Um, but she also directed the Metropolitan Detroit um, Cancer Surveillance System. Um, so there's actually on Wayne State's campus, there's a cancer registry right there. And she had quite a bit of grant funding. But what I really respected about her is that she let us do our jobs. She let us make mistakes. She was very flexible. She was very open and, and understanding. Um, and I think the other thing that I really respected about her is that um, the people who worked with her or, and still do have been working with her for a very long time. And I think that's a good sign of a leader if people want to stick around because um, it's all about human interactions. It's all about human leadership. And um, you are only, your project is only as strong as really the people who work with you. And so if, you, if you're not understanding, if you're not flexible, if you're not really a human being <laughs> when you're leading, um, I think it makes it more challenging to keep people around um, and um, have that continuity of, of teams working um, on any given project or, or working with you. So a few months ago, I read Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. And one of the quotes that he came up with time and time again was an idea from General George Patton. And the quote was, never tell people how to do things, tell them what to do, and they will surprise you with their ingenuity. And so that's that kind of what I'm hearing with you as well. Mm -hmm. That is a great quotation. I hadn't heard of that before, but really I have transitioned. You know, when I initially took my job in, in um, January of 2018, I really didn't, medical training doesn't teach you how to be a leader. Um, it doesn't teach you how to do HR management. Um, doesn't teach you a lot of the business administrative aspects of medicine and directing um, even research labs or, or research groups. Um, and so I think that's been the most challenging thing that no, for me to learn and also for all of my colleagues I stay in touch with from Wayne State School of Medicine. They've also said the same things. It's not um, medicine that's the challenging part. It's the human resources aspect of medicine, the business aspect of medicine. Um, because I think a lot of the science and the art of medicine are getting lost into the business of medicine these days. And um, I think we can focus on, on the medicine all we want, but if you can't have consistent members of your team um, because of high HR turnover or, or the practice is being mismanaged or the lab is being mismanaged, then you're not going to advance your practice or you're not going to have the strong um, research lab that you're hoping to have. So you're, you're preaching to the choir. As those sentiments are exactly why we <laughs> started this, this podcast. Um, because we want to provide a resource for medical students to hear from people like yourself who are who learn this the hard way and and expose them to these ideas yeah. so that to, you know inspire their own learning. But I wanted to go back to something yeah. you were talking about, which is the challenges that you faced. 
And I wanted to ask if there are any, any, any formative challenges that you've had that really shaped how you think about flexible leadership now. And maybe if there's a mentor or two, like you mentioned Ann Schwartz, but if you have like another mentor that maybe helped you through this challenge and taught you a very valuable lesson, I wanted to give you an opportunity to share that story with us. Yeah, absolutely. So since a very young age, although it wasn't diagnosed, I've had bipolar disorder and I've been in treatment for a very long time um, for it. And that was a huge hurdle to learn to live with and to thrive despite of. And, you know, many medical trainees, many people have psychiatric issues um, and disorders. And it's all about the coping skills that you develop, the level of insight um, that I as a patient have had, um, having a low threshold for reaching out and, and for social support and having that strong social support and really making good choices. And that is the last one is one of the most important things um, to succeeding um, as in any realm with some kind of challenge, but really having a low threshold for social support and reaching out is the most important thing. When I was a med student, the uh, student affairs office was incredibly supportive and linked me to resources. They found, helped me find the, a good therapist for me while I was a med student. They helped me, you know, I was very proactive when I was about to start a tough rotation like surgery or um, some, a rotation that required a lot of call or inconsistent sleep patterns, which that is, it can be challenging when you have a, um, a mental illness. So, and not getting that consistent sleep was really tough. So I did talk to clerkship directors in private and said, you know, this is who I am. I'm on treatment, I'm on medication, but I think that let's work my schedule so that it'll be a little bit easier for me to handle these inconsistent shifts, um, if you will. So I think that has been, um, I can't say enough, Um, that has been the biggest challenge I've ever had and um, really succeeding despite all of that. I didn't realize until recently what an achievement that has been. It kind of hit me after the fact. I was so busy focused on making the most of every minute of my training that it wasn't until training was over, which it kind of seems like a big whirlwind and 10 years are gone, 15 years are gone, have passed. But um, I'm now starting to realize how significant that was. And the most important person to me has actually been my brother. Um, he has schizophrenia, or schiz- he actually has schizoaffective disorder, and and his example and how he coped with it, and in a positive way, has been really critical for an example for me. Well, I really appreciate you being very transparent with us and and vulnerable about that. That's a great story, and and I'm so happy that you were able to kind of persevere through it and. And you've made an amazing career so far out of it. So that's so great. What advice would you give to people who are maybe going through that same thing at the beginning of their training, whether it's, you know, mental illness or even just struggles similar to that? Yeah, I say the first step is to acknowledge that you need help and to reach out and, and get that help. 
student resources, student services, student affairs at um, Wayne State School of Medicine. I cannot say enough about what they have done for me as them, what they did for me as a med student. And I would just encourage, you know, people to, to seek medical attention, medical help. Um, What level of help that, that requires with a mental illness depends on the severity and where you are is in your journey. Um, And I always say that understanding and being able to recognize and manage a mental health crisis for a medical trainee and for a physician in general is just as important as learning CPR to saving lives. And so, you know, I, I had some awareness of my disorder before I started medical school. And it was very soon into medical school that I reached out to student affairs and said, I need, I need treatment. Um, because, um, I think at that point, being a physician scientist, having the career that I, I kind of envisioned was so important to me that it was, it was something outside of my, my world. It was, it just seemed so far, far out of a reach for someone struggling like I was. But once I got into treatment, it, it really was revolutionary. It, it enabled me to not just survive training, but really thrive as a trainee and, and in my career. So um, my biggest advice is to know when you need help and to have a low threshold for reaching out. And it's not something to be ashamed of. Something you said that I really liked was how you reached out to um, like rotation heads before you were on say surgery and you asked them to meet you where you were at. And I think that sort of humility and vulnerability is something that gets kind of lost in medicine and, right. and showing, showing such, uh, such of those emotions, it feels kind of like imposter syndrome and that you might be like setting yourself back and be seen, being, having been seen a different way from your, your peers. There's always the fear that, you know, when I was, training, I did not divulge to my fellow students that I had, I was in treatment for um, a mental illness. Um, Because of the huge stigma um, that I had encountered, I would be on rounds and people would be making fun of of psych patients behavior, et cetera, or kind of saying, oh, the psych patient's going to be hard to get a history from. And so I was very quiet about that, but I think the more we can be open and honest about, about psych issues, the less taboo they're going to be and the easier it's going to be for people with psych issues to, to really live um, in society and be productive and thrive. I think that's really important to me to, to kind of get that message out. So what do you think um, needs to be improved on in order to help all the other medical students or medical trainees who might be suffering from different psychiatric issues, bipolar, schizoaffective, depression? Yeah. So I think it's really heightened now in the pandemic situation because we feel so many people and including myself, I mean, I've been teleworking since March, mid-March. 
And so it, it can seem isolating um, and I can feel a little isolated sometimes. And I, I know many people have echoed that sentiment. Um, I think the most important thing it ha could happen on a peer level I mean, I talked about reaching out to student affairs, getting medical attention, getting therapy, et cetera. But I think the more that students can band together and create you know, a safe space for talking about some of these um, issues and some of these disorders, and I think the, the lower the walls will be and people can actually um, not have to invest so much energy in hiding something. I think I invested a tremendous amount of energy in hiding the fact for my peers that I had a mental illness and that if I had just been, you know, if it had just been something like, oh, I have hypertension or diabetes or something and I need to make sure that I eat properly or, um, or what have you, or I need to take my insulin on a regular schedule. Um, I think if, I think it would have been a lot easier for me to have gone through medical training as a student um, if that had been the case. I think talking about it is the very first step. And um, maybe even having small group sessions on and frank conversations being organized uh, among the students would be, I think, a huge step forward. Um, I think the caveat to that being that it, it's really important to have people who are medically, you know, have been trained as psychiatrists, therapists, and clinical so social workers available to handle the crisis situations or to help provide resources to somebody who's struggling. Um, but I think the best thing can come from from peer groups and even, you know, just watching out for your peers. And, you know, if you see somebody who's having a rough time, reach out. This is a hard, hard time for everybody. I don't care who you are. I don't care how, if you don't have any barriers, any stressors other than the pandemic and all the tumultuous circumstances in this country and everything going on. This is a hard time, I think, for everybody. So, um, and and those difficulties, those stressors, just make everything more. They exacerbate everything and bring, make everything more extreme. Yeah, if I had had like a peer group or even like a buddy system as a med student, that would have really helped quite a bit. The MD-PhD students, when I was um, at Wayne, we really kind of banded together and we were very cohesive group. So those, those students knew um, about my bipolar disorder and they were incredibly supportive. I mean, they were wonderful. And I have stayed in touch with some of them um, because they've been so supportive over the years. I know that some of them in my my year listen to the show, so I just wanted to give them a shout out too because I feel like they're they're part of my little clique. Um, you know, Caleb, Caleb and I are good friends, but like Caleb's going to be my attending at one point. <laughs> <laughs> and that's one of the weirdest things because you know you t do your first couple years, then you go and you do your PhD work as an MD PhD, and then you come back to clinical years. And you, I had forgotten everything. 
And actually some of my classmates in my third year, I think it was my third year, were my um, attending, or not attendings, but they were my residents. And so that, that was a little odd, you know, um, at first to realize that um, people I had started out and we were peers um, initially, somebody was, was supervising me already. And I had forgotten, I had literally forgotten everything during graduate school. And it is a huge transition for MD PhDs because at the end of your graduate training, you have, you're, you just defended your thesis. You're, you just did your dissertation defense. And I was flying around the country speaking at conferences. It was an amazing time. And then I went, oh, I need to go back to the clinic. And I don't remember anything from the first couple of years. So I think that transition is really challenging to a lot of MD-PhD students. So I want to ask you about that kind of dichotomy really quick, because I feel like that happens so often in medical training is you you complete something and you're kind of at the top and then you go to the next step and now you're at the bottom of the total pole and you have yeah. to kind of bring yourself back to earth. How did you go about dealing with that? You know, after you said you were presenting everywhere, you're doing all these awesome conferences and then you had to go back to the hospital and I'm sure everybody was like, oh, there's this third year medical student here. Like, oh, yeah, whatever. you know what I mean? So yeah, the very first rotation I had was in OB-GYN and back um, as a, a third year. And very luckily and thankfully, one of the other MD-PhD students in my class was also rotating at the same hospital system and um, had the same rotation schedule as I did. So we really banded together. I mean, we were big supports for each other. And both of us had um, a transition to make. And it's a, it's a really, you, I mean, I think you both said it very well. Um, you go from the top of your game as a PhD student, and then all of a sudden you know nothing and you, in the clinical realm. And you're not really, you're not very kind of, how do I say this? It's not that you're not useful, but it, you're not trained to the level at which you can do procedures and, and write prescriptions and orders and things like that, that as a third year, just starting out, um, you have a lot to learn. So it was, it was a big transition, but again, the same theme of really reaching out and um, my co-MDPHE um, student and I really really kind of banded together. And we were often on the same rotating teams in the hospital because our, our last names are right next to each other. So I guess they, they divvied us up alphabetically, but we, I think that helped tremendously because she was feeling the exact same things that I did. So did going through this um, back into clerkships transition, which by the way, is still a problem that all of the PhDs are facing. So nothing has, nothing has changed there. But has going through this transition helped you when you were transitioning, say, into residency and then into your fellowship and then into a faculty position? Like, were you more prepared, do you feel? Um, I think so. I think that I my perspective really changed when I went from made that transition back into the clinical world. Um, just understanding that in medicine, there there is a training pecking order, and 
and it's in there really to protect the patients and make sure patients get the optimal care. And so I just acknowledging that, you know, with every new rotation as a, as a resident, I had to learn a whole different set of information. I knew very little at the beginning of the rotation, but by the end, I knew quite a bit. So I think in medicine, I was constantly going through as, as a trainee, this process of learning a ton of information, applying it in, in the clinical context. And then, and once I finally got to an under level of understanding, then it was time to, to change rotations. And so, but this, there's um, certain concepts and skills and knowledge that, that go across all rotations. So there are little building blocks that happen with every rotation in, in medicine and uh, as a, um, as a med student and as a resident that really you, you never see how it's really going to come together, but just trust that it does. Um, your knowledge, your ex exposure to patients and different patients and their stories and their workups, et cetera, that, that, that does come together um, at, at some point. I mean, if you had told me years ago um, that I would be where I am right now, I wouldn't have believed it. Um, but every single step along the way, every career move that I made prepared me for, for this stage in, in my career. So I know you mentioned that you're not practicing. I imagine when you were going through medical school and residency, you, like you just mentioned, you learned a lot that has prepared you for the place you're in now. And what were some of the things, maybe it was just the clinical, being in a clinic, seeing patients, recognizing that you know, you're treating human lives and, and that matters, or maybe there were some other things, but what were some of the things that really resonated with you and, and helped train you for the position you're in today? Yeah, so as an um, anatomic pathology trained resident, um, we did not see patients. Well, we did autopsies. We considered those patients, we did autopsies on patients, um, but um, we didn't see live patients except for cytopathologists who do uh, fine needle aspiration. So um, it's a little different um, in pathology training um, than it is in, say, internal medicine where you're actually seeing live patients face-to-face. -face. I think pathologists are often in the back background, but we're the unsung heroes, I think, in, in both anatomic pathology, but definitely in the pandemic, um, the laboratory professionals have been the unsung heroes, all the way from the techs to the people who are who are leading, directing the labs, because um, they have been working around the clock during the COVID pandemic, SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, um, to, to run those tests and do all that um, SARS-CoV-2 testing. Um, so I think I just wanted to say that, that I'm, I'm not seeing patients and I didn't see patients as a resident. It was all behind the scenes. But I think one of the most important things is that I learned to my threshold over the t period of, of training for handling things and my ability to integrate information across many different rotations has really shaped um, how I approach things now. Um, 
one of the the things that I do in my current job, I do a lot of of answering questions from the cancer registry system of about cancers. So all that information that I learned translated over into to what I'm doing today. But more importantly, I'm doing some things, um, directing some projects at the National Cancer Institute that are really exciting and are going to change how cancer research is done in this country on a population scale. And so while it, it doesn't seem from the outside perspective, like what all that medical training that it's directly related to what I do now, but it really is um, not just for the content and the information that I provide, but I'm directing a whole slide imaging pilot and a virtual tissue repository pilot and this huge program called Cancer Path Charts. So, and in addition to all of those things, we the National Cancer Institute also is um, partnering with the Department of Energy, uh, which has the Oak Ridge National Laboratory has the second most powerful computer in the world, and we are doing algorithm development and um, extracting information automatically from pathology reports. Um, so I think there are a lot of exciting things that we're doing that are pathology related. So I mentioned two things really quickly, the whole slide imaging pilot and the virtual tissue repository. So the whole slide imaging pilot, in the future, we will be, um, we're testing out acquiring and de-identifying digital whole slide images of the, the slides for those cancer cases from the biopsies and the resections and offering those in the future, the, the vision is that we will offer those um, linked, de-identified, but also linked to other data like disease outcome, demographics, tumor information, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a really exciting thing. And then the virtual tissue repository, we're going to, um, right now we're piloting it using the cancer registry system as an honest broker for obtaining tissue for research and data, medical record data. So it's really on that national scale because we ascertain over 500 million cancer cases a year, that sheer magnitude of cases that we will be have access to, both information, their digital slides in the future, and their tissue, acquiring tissue through our uh, cancer registry system is is really going to change how tissue-based and automated analysis algorithms are developed and all that research in cancer is going to happen on a population scale. A little roundabout answer, but to how my training is related to what I do today, but that that's one of the most exciting things, I think, is the the potential to have a broader impact than one patient at a time and one research project at a time. Um, instead, I can impact cancer research across the board. That's that's what gets me excited about my job. I think it's, a, it's an incredible vision that you have, Dr. Van Dyke. And it seems like you're kind of in a position with a lot of responsibilities and there's a lot of people reporting to you. And something that I wanted to talk about uh, in the time that we have remaining is gender equity and STEM, because it is a it is a problem. And I know there are some programs out there like through the HHMI's Hannah Gray Scholars Program 
that have been working to combat this. But I wanted to get your take on the current state of gender equity as someone who's in a very high leadership position. What are some of the things that you've noticed that have improved that we can improve on going forward as practitioners of medicine and science? I think what's the most challenging thing, it's kind of like teaching ethics. It's very challenging to make somebody or help somebody who is going to be biased, um, who who doesn't really care about learning more about their biases and growing and stretching. It's very challenging to to teach people these kind of human skills. And it's kind of like teaching ethics. You know, there's the group of people who are going to do the right thing because that's what they're thinking about all the time. And then you have a group of people who are just not thinking about it, but once you point it out to them or they're aware of it, they will, they always start thinking about it and they do the right thing. And then there are people who are just gonna say, um, I, I don't care. And so I think the most challenging group in when it comes to gender equity and say diversity um, awareness and um, acceptance, not just tolerance, because um, tolerance I think is is one shade away from bias and hatred. Um, I think it, it really, we need to advance it further to acceptance and um, of diversity. Um, I think that there, the people who don't care and about their biases, they're going to be like that regardless of what we try to do. Um, but I think what I've seen, especially at NIH, and this is really exciting to me, is NIH has um, an anti-harassment, sexual harassment training. And, and there was a big campaign by Francis Collins of, um, you know, harassment doesn't work here at, at NIH. And that, I mean, seeing leaders, the, the leader of NIH as a whole saying, we are not going to tolerate harassment based on sex, based on um, race, ethnicity, ability, sexual orientation, et cetera. And I think that change has been a welcome change for me. Um, I have been very fortunate that my mentors have all been very strong women and have been incredible mentors, very supportive. So along the way, I haven't encountered too many circumstances that have been negative um, experiences where I felt like I was belittled or kind of held back because of, of my gender. I, I've been very fortunate in that respect, but I also have chosen where I work very carefully. And I've chosen, you know, the people who are, are my mentors very, very carefully and strategically. Um, and so I may have had kind of a rosy colored experience, but I, I just, I see hope in the future that, um, more and more people are aware and care about biases, unconscious, conscious, and also, um, you know, making sure everybody has a seat at the table. These are really critical questions. And um, I've just been very fortunate and that 
I've always worked for really strong women. You know, I can't say enough for my mentors at Wayne State, um, Ann Schwartz, um, Michelle Cote, and Kathy Bach have all been really strong um, mentors for me. So what message would you want to give to our female listeners and what advice would you give to them? I know you mentioned there that, and I think that was a great piece of advice is to choose wisely where you work and the people who you choose to be your mentors. And I think that's great advice that, you know, once you have the ability to choose, make sure that you're surrounding yourself with people who believe in equality and believe in the same things that you do. But for somebody who might not be in that position yet, for Mm -hmm. somebody who might have a mentor who doesn't see eye to eye on this issue or is struggling, what advice might you give to, um, I guess it could be anybody, not just specifically females, but anybody who's struggling with, you know, issues of equality and issues of diversity where their leader doesn't necessarily see eye to eye. Um, Along the way, I've all, I've sought out different types of mentors And I've always had somebody or at least one or two people outside of a professional or training situation where I could go and bounce these things off of. So um, my advice is always to, if you feel like you're being held back, you may, you probably are right. If your gut is telling you there's something wrong, I would encourage them to reach out to the resources Um, there are in professional training situations. There are, you know, house staff organizations. There's the ACGME. Um, There's your, when you're a resident, you have a graduate medical training office, your residency program director and your fellowship program director all these people are really critical to, to respond to those kind of issues and to help you kind of navigate those waters. So always thinking, remembering you're not alone if you're experiencing something like this. Uh, many other people have as well. And you're not alone in having to figure out how to handle it on your own. So I always reach out for help for anything that I'm dealing with and bounce them off of mentors and and people more senior than I am. I think that's a really nice note to end on. And um, we always like to finish our interviews with one question, which is what are your favorite books? Oh my goodness. It probably would be that book that I read that got me interested in science and psychobiology of stress from uh, Robert Sobolski. Um, That hands down is is the most um, interesting book I've ever read. So that has to be number one on my list. What about books you would suggest to uh, young medical trainees? Um, I would suggest, and, and this doesn't have anything to do with, with a patient's perspective or medicine. I would encourage you to all medical trainees to explore thoughts, beliefs, feelings, perspectives other than your own. Um, so, for example, I for this diversity class I just took um, as part of my um, my program, my MPH pro, MPA program, I read this book called "Strangers in Their Own Land" by um, Arlie um, Hutchchild, and what was so amazing about it, it was it was really telling the stories of people in the deep 
southern Louisiana and um, following some Trump um, supporters and some Tea Party support. Or it was the Tea Party supporters, sorry, not Trump supporters. And it was a perspective very different from my own. Um, and I learned so much about from people who are questioning the very things that I think and believe. Um, so that's my recommendation because your patients are human beings in a, in a whole context. They have these lives and their health issues are just one aspect of, of those lives. And so understanding that um, and understanding the many different perspectives out there and being accepting of of all different kinds of people are really that I think that's the most critical to being a good listening um, clinician who can hear your patients. Well, this has been a pleasure to interview you. Thank you so much for Thank coming you. on. Absolutely. Thank you. So that's all for today. Thanks everyone so much for listening to this episode of Leading the Rounds. Hopefully you were able to learn something new and get a better perspective of how we can improve as leaders. If you like our content, please subscribe and follow. We work to put out a new episode every other week. You can also contact us and connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Leading the Rounds or email us at leadingtherounds at gmail.com. See you next time on Leading the Rounds.